Namo Shakyamuni Buddhaya. Dear respected Thai, dear noble community, thank you for being here. And for those who weren't here last night, uh, just let you know that there's some potential second speaker. There's a feline in my household now who sometimes likes to make interjections. Hmm. So this morning, uh, I just realized about four hours ago that it's now exactly 25 years since my first retreat with our beloved teacher, Tai Thich Nhat Hanh, in September 1996. Um, it was the 21-day retreat called the Heart of the Buddha. And it's the retreat Rowan was talking about last night, the one in which Valerie and I first met Rowan and the Sangha of Montana. Um, at that time, I was 30 years old and had begun this practice of mindfulness and meditation only a, one year earlier. I had a lot of habits of body, speech, and mind, especially mind, that caused suffering to myself and others. They were almost entirely unconscious. I had barely seen any of them yet in 1996. And I still have plenty of habits to transform now, but back then, wow. Um, this book of Thais, um, The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, which I consider to be one of Thais' real masterpieces and an absolutely timeless classic of Buddha Dharma was edited, not by me, um, from talks that Tai gave in that 21 day retreat, which was in English, um, as well as many more talks that Tai gave in Vietnamese during the 90 day winter retreat. And I'd just like to bring into our circle what Tai says to us right out of the gate to open chapter one of this powerful illuminating book. And the name of chapter one is Entering the Heart of the Buddha. The book's very first sentences from Tai are these. Buddha was not a God. He was a human being like you and me and he suffered, just as we do. If we go to the Buddha with our hearts open, he will look at us, his eyes filled with compassion, and say, because there is suffering in your heart, it is possible for you to enter my heart. The layman Vimalakirti said, because the world is sick, I am sick. 
because people suffer, I have to suffer. Tai says, this statement was also made by the Buddha. So please don't think that because you are unhappy, because there is pain in your heart, that you cannot go to the Buddha. It is exactly because there is pain in your heart that communication is possible. Your suffering and my suffering are the basic condition for us to enter the Buddha's heart and for the Buddha to enter our hearts. For 45 years, Tai says, for 45 years, the Buddha said over and over again, I teach only suffering and the transformation of suffering. Tai says, suffering is the means the Buddha used to liberate himself. And it is also the means by which we can become free. And he goes on, I grew up in a time of war. There was destruction all around. Children, adults, values, a whole country. Children, adults, values, a whole country. As a young person, Tai says, I suffered a lot. The wounds of war in me are still not all healed. There are nights I lie awake and embrace my people, my country, and the whole planet with my mindful breathing. Without suffering, you cannot grow. Without suffering, you cannot get the peace and joy you deserve. So please don't run away from your suffering. Embrace it and cherish it. Go to the Buddha, sit with him, and show him your pain. He will look at you with loving kindness, compassion, and mindfulness and show you ways to embrace your suffering and look deeply into it. With understanding and compassion, you will be able to heal the wounds in your heart and the wounds of the world. The Buddha called suffering a holy truth because our suffering has the capacity of showing us the path to liberation. Embrace your suffering and let it reveal to you the way to peace. It just seems like he wrote it for this year, doesn't it? Um, But going back to that time, um, one of the things that I personally remember most vividly from sitting in the Dharma Hall in that retreat, watching, listening to Tai teach, was a moment when Tai said in this same spirit, the sentence, don't try to escape your suffering. You have to stick to your suffering. You have to stick to your suffering. That really turned my head around 180 degrees, my 30-year-old head, and began this process of 
blowing my mind open and ultimately radically changing everything about how I live my life. So in the registration forms for this retreat, a few people shared a little bit about what's alive for them right now today in their practice. And two main themes were very clear. One is how to practice with the highly charged debates and fractiousness going on in our country. And the other was how to practice with chronic strong pain and the fear of death that often goes with that. And on these two heartfelt inquiries into the challenge of being human in America in the autumn of 2021, Tai and the Buddha are pointing the way forward for us. So one thing that's pretty clear for all of us right now, I dare to say, whether it's on both or just one of these inquiries, it's that this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's important, too, to recognize that the this I'm referring to isn't necessarily the coronavirus or physical issues happening in so many humans and even other animals' bodies. The this I'm talking about is the feelings and emotions about all of that that are playing out in our minds and in our bodies. When we take in the news, when we confront our vulnerability to real pain and even to death, when we find ourselves profoundly altering our behaviors around many, many activities that have been pretty central to how we think about and have defined ourselves and our lives. The this that is a marathon, it's that first noble truth of dukkha, ill-being, suffering, discomfort. Not too long ago, a longtime practitioner said to me how her years of mindfulness and meditation practice had helped her a great deal with sudden unexpected losses, helped her to ride the waves of grief. Um, and she said that in the present time, she's facing a more gradual, steady decline in health of someone extremely important to her. And it's not likely that this decline will turn and go the other direction. And she told me that the daily thinking of how badly she's going to miss the person when they're gone has been putting her in a lot of fear, real fear. And I could just feel, um, the ache of it, 
And it also, in hearing this from a longtime practitioner, reminded me of something Sister Gina, the abbess of Lower Hamlet in Plum Village, used to say to us nuns from time to time when we were like really in it. You know, we'd been nuns practicing diligently with these human minds for years already, but now something was really, really hard. And she would say, oh, now you have to practice. Now you have to practice. And um, some nuns who were deep in the throes of difficulty didn't take that teaching very well, at least not at first, but I liked it. Um, it's a lot like when Tai tells us, and we've seen the calligraphy, this is it, this is it. And remember, as, as was just said in this, this chapter, all the practices Tai has chosen to give us were forged in a time of massive losses and real terror that went on for many, many years. So the second noble truth, what are the causes and conditions? What are the ingredients that are bringing this suffering we're feeling into being hour after hour and day after day? One that's absolutely key is that the mind is not here in the present moment. It's traveling into the future. And another is that it has notions and predictions about how unbearable that future is going to feel. So, I mean, my really simple suggestion to this friend was to really, really double down and triple down and quadruple down on your commitment as a practitioner to not giving energy to these thoughts about the future that make you suffer. Predictions about the future and how much you're going to suffer, so why not start suffering now? It's, it's part of how our mind is wired, but the good news is we, we also have the potential to change it. When these thoughts are, these kinds of thoughts are happening and we're caught inside of them, we suffer. We suffer and we make other people suffer. As soon as we recognize them, our practice is to lovingly bring the attention back home to the present moment. We've heard it, we know it, but we gotta do it. <laughs> Dozens of times a day, maybe a hundred times a day, if the pull is really strong and persistent. That's our practice. That is our practice. And I mean, an experience of my own um, before I was living in Plum Village that came to my mind when I was just hearing this friend. Um, and I believe I've shared it in a different context before at Flathead Lake, maybe. Just sending a shout to Flathead Lake. We know you're there. <laughs> um, it was the period just before and just after and through um, 
a huge loss that occurred in my own life in the year following that 21-day retreat. I was attending the Washington, D.C. Sanghas, and the before part actually ended up being the crucible that gave me one of my first fundamental direct experiences of what this practice can do for us. I was sitting with my neighborhood Sangha two or three mornings a week. We would sit for around 20 minutes, silent, walk indoors about five to 10 minutes, sit in silence for another 20, hear a short reading and go off to work. And at some point in that very painful time that I was anticipating this loss and trying to battle it away, I guess, in my mind, I realized it dawned on me that I was spending 90% or more of every one of those hours with the Sangha fighting with that situation. Just, I mean, ruminating. I can't believe X, Y, Z. How could this be happening to me? Well, I'm going to do this and this. Oh, but what if that and that? Oh, I might have to do this. Um, and that realization of what I was doing, and not only all through my meditations, but more or less all day, every day, um, it began what was a very long process of seeing that habit play out like 100,000 more times and having a fresh choice each time about whether my mind continues to go down those dark unconscious paths that deepen the suffering or whether I choose a different course right here, right now. And as unpleasant as it was and still can be to recognize and really meet the sticky pain that our mind creates around situations in our life, it's actually the good news because it is the moment of opportunity for a different response. And um, I don't know if I shared this part before, but in the immediate aftermath of that crushing loss that I'd been anticipating, which did happen, um, there came that most humbling kind of nitty gritty in the trenches coming back over and over to the moment. And I remember clearly one time just sitting in my apartment there and feeling such wild pain and fear about what life is going to be for me and just how, how dark and how it was nothing of what I wanted or imagined. And actually saying to myself at a certain moment, okay, I need to use the bathroom. Okay, I'm standing up. I'm taking this step. Now I'm taking this step. Now I'm turning the corner. 
I mean, that practice of just this, really this, was all I could do in that moment. It, the pain just um, kind of broke through all my, well, one set of painful notions, I guess, was breaking through my more, um, the ways that I constructed my life more normally. But so that practice of just this is what I did because that was all I could do. And my experience did eventually change. We know it does. We know it does. The other thing that happened in that same painful early aftermath time of a loss is that a Sangha sister spontaneously organized a bunch of people from the Sangha and even some of their partners and kids who didn't even know me to come to that apartment and give it a truly badly needed painting. And it was, it was amazing and a little overwhelming just to be surrounded in this energy. And at one point I, I had to leave this work party and go outside for some air. I stood on the sidewalk and I just, I started sobbing. So that's what I did. I stood there and I sobbed. And then I came back inside. And then we all ate the pizza I had ordered for us together. So at times like these, um, we need to, first of all, get very real. And I would say dogged about coming back to this moment and to everything in it that is not wrong. Everything in this moment that's not wrong. I mean, we just telescope, you know, and we need to, we need to open the, the lens to include the whole. And secondly, keep on doing everything we can to hold ourselves with a lot of compassion and a lot of patience, a lot of patience. Tai said, patience is a mark of true love. And thirdly, to take refuge in the kind of friends who don't mind if you have to stop in the middle of something you're doing together and have a good cry. Um, so regarding the, the question of strong pain, in particular physical pain, um, although I don't have personal direct experience with long-term severe pain, I have had periods when I would get very strong headaches once or twice a week. And I really couldn't get much of anything done with that kind of pain. And here's just how I practiced with it. Um, first of all, similar to the story I was just telling, I stopped because I had to. I had to stop. I was just, my, um, my ego was, was stopped by the, the force of the pain um, and surrender. I, I had to surrender my agenda when it was there. I had to surrender my strongly held expectations 
about what I should be doing and accomplishing and delivering and appearing to others. That's a practice. <laughs> and I also had to surrender my old habitual belief, again, mostly unconscious until these moments would come up, that uh, taking a medication for relief of pain is somehow some kind of personal failure. I let that go. And so stopping, surrendering, and then again, taking refuge. And I, I will again put the Sangha in first position right here. Um, in addition to what I was just saying a moment ago about friends generally, I would also encourage anyone struggling with this kind of chronic pain um, to seek out and find your affinity group Sangha. Just like groups who meet for connection around living with bereavement or with addictions and compulsions and so on. Um, find your Sangha of people who really understand what it feels like to, to, be, to have this be just a feature of life, daily, daily life, day in and day out. Um, refuge in the Dharma. I'm just gonna mention a few specific resources. You don't need to write these down right now because we'll make sure that they go out into an email, but I'll just name some significant ones. Um, Insight meditation teacher, Oren J. Sofer, um, who's also known for Dharma and nonviolent communication, but he gave a retreat and has given talks on practicing with pain as a portal to awakening. I believe he had Lyme disease, a really serious case of Lyme disease. And those talks are available for free on Dharma Seed. So I'll be glad to make sure a link is available for those. Um, insight teacher Tony Bernhard's book, How to Be Sick, is very well regarded. Tara Brock has a whole collection of audio talks and meditations for the practice of being with pain. And she also, her whole book, actually True Refuge is about her practice through a life-threatening illness. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, of course, was a pioneer. I mean, he really, pain was actually his, really his portal, not only for um, people to, to find their own way to awakening, but to bring our practice into much greater awareness in the medical field and, and in the, the culture more generally. So he has meditations and books about this. Um, and then Darlene Cohen um, was an American Zen priest from 1999 until she died in 2011, and also a real leader in this field of chronic pain being a ground of deep, and even joyful practice. Uh, and I'd like to read a short excerpt of hers here. Her website is still maintained with her talks and a listing of books. And um, again, I'll, I'll send out the way to find them. Darling Cohen said, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, 
can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again, and then am flooded with its healing energy. Then she says, despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. She said, I've been around that wheel a million times. First, I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can, she said. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else, like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist until it overwhelms me. But I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So um, if you don't have a pen and paper handy, you might like to have one. Um, just give a moment if anyone needs to look. Um, so first of all, just please make a note to yourself to use the contact form on my website, barbaranewell.com to jot down any questions or experiences that are arising for you right now. And I'll incorporate them into the talk tomorrow. And if you would like to not have your name referenced or would like to have what you share only be summarized instead of shared as it is, please just say so. And then secondly, I'd like to talk some now about the personal reflective practice exercise that we're invited to do this afternoon. Um, I remember some years ago when Ty began to tell us, we have to call our suffering by its true names. And he went to the board and wrote these different things. I think I've noted this at Flathead as well. Um, modern experiences of dukkha. So he wrote um, addiction, um, violence, poverty, disease, unemployment, um, the real things, the real things. And this approach is clearly shown in the way that Tai has rewritten the five precepts for us lay practitioners, the five mindfulness trainings of Plum Village, 
We know that each training begins with aware of the suffering, aware of the suffering that arises around this and this. And so the invitation in this year's retreat is to compose your own personal precept or mindfulness training that meets you right where you are most challenged right now, today. Um, I'd like to just read a little more from the rest of this very short first chapter. Tai said, uh, the ocean of suffering is immense, but if you turn around, you can see the land. The seed of suffering in you may be strong, but don't wait until you have no more suffering before allowing yourself to be happy. When one tree in the garden is sick, you have to care for it, but don't overlook all the healthy trees. Even while you have pain in your heart, you can enjoy the many wonders of life, the beautiful sunset, smile of a child, the many flowers and trees. To suffer is not enough, so please don't be imprisoned by your suffering. If you've experienced hunger, you know that having food is a miracle. If you've suffered from the cold, you know the preciousness of warmth. When you've suffered, you know how to appreciate the elements of paradise that are present. If you dwell only in your suffering, you will miss paradise. Don't ignore your suffering, but don't forget to enjoy the wonders of life for your sake and for the benefit of many beings. So if we're thinking, oh, call my suffering by its true names. There's so much talk already happening all around about suffering. I don't want to write any of that down. It'll just cause me to think. This is where it's very important, as Tai said here, that we make use of our practice to ground ourselves in the present moment where the elements of paradise are also present and consciously remind ourselves of all that is sustaining and nourishing and loving us right now. So in just a little bit, we have a mindful lunchtime to stop and have all the time and space to let go of all the stories and all the agendas and all the battles and contemplate taking in the gifts of the earth, the gifts of the sun, and countless living beings, plants, animals, trees, insects, near and far away, humans, and really take it in, really, really take it in. And we also um, will get to enjoy many moments today of walking, walking. We know one day, there will come a day when we can't walk. Let's enjoy walking. Walking on this gorgeous, miraculous planet, 
and feeling with every step our feet being massaged by the earth and giving her a kiss with them in return. Why not? We also, if we want to feel our strength, as we contemplate the true names of our suffering, we can practice pebble meditation to remember our flowerness, our mountainness, our still waterness, our spaciousness. We can also contemplate wholeheartedly on meta phrases that help us touch the energy of loving kindness for our own being and for others. And then for this exercise, we can begin by simply free writing or journaling about where things are difficult for us in life right now. As I was saying, like going to the Buddha and showing him our pain. And then from there, reflecting a bit on how nothing can survive without food. Again, that's the second noble truth. What's the food that keeps my suffering? My turning against myself or turning against others? What's the food that keeps that going? How is that second noble truth working in my life right now to keep the dukkha going? And then... Consider what it might feel like if this suffering could be eased, even released, released. What might that feel like? Maybe recalling times when we have experienced relief of a suffering, like for example, when Tai talks about the joy of the non-toothache. And then maybe what are the one or two or three concrete, specific, preferably small, but if you can do big, go big, personal actions I can take each time this comes up in order to help it release again. So a precept could come out sounding something like this. This is what I, I just like scribbled something like this. Aware of the head and neck pain that arise from clenching my jaw when I think about arguments over how to reduce the spread of COVID. I'm determined to reclaim my peace and joy in the very here and now. I will practice stepping off the freight train of my thoughts and stories and judgments, especially my expectations about what I and what others should be doing. I will turn on the classical radio station that's free of any news reporting, come back to noticing my in-breath and out-breath, and pet my sweet old cat until he purrs. 
I will pull out the piece of paper on which I have written the names of four people who I know love me, even when I'm a mess. I will reread Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's statement that if we could but read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each one's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. I will remember that everyone involved is feeling the pain of anger and that anger is just another face of fear. I will call upon Tai and Avalokiteshvara to embrace us all with compassion. I practice these things to keep the door of my heart open for a new understanding and freedom to manifest in this very moment. And I will open to the possibility of taking one tiny action to help the situation. That's my very rough, very long scribble, just to give you an idea, but please adapt the exercise completely to whatever way is real and alive for you. And if you just don't resonate at all with writing your own precept, but you got a lot out of writing a gatha last year, like last year, um, feel free to write yourself a gatha that you can say to yourself in those moments of real challenge, when the pain is big, um, when the fear is big, when the anger is big. And notice that in my scribbling, um, I emphasized sensory embodied experiences. I think um, my, my personal experience is that when, if it's, just a, if it's just things that I try to remind myself you know, conceptual things or teachings, those can be really helpful. But, but when the pull of an emotion of a reaction is strong, a lot of times those beautiful thoughts and principles just can't quite, um, can't quite match the force of the emotion and the bodily stuff that's going on. So these senses that I'm talking about, like listening to some music, touching my cat, pulling out the piece of paper and seeing with my eyes the names of people who love me unconditionally or the piece of paper with a beautiful reminder from the poet. Um, and then perhaps contemplating one small action um, that I can take to help. Um, I do just want to ask briefly, is there anyone here who has never practiced walking meditation before? Switch to my gallery view. Is there anyone who's never practiced walking meditation before? Looks like everyone has practiced. Well, maybe you can bring the spirit as if you never had practiced before. How about that? as if you had never eaten whatever is on your plate before for your lunch. 
That's about everything that I have to share at the moment. So I'd like to ask if we could have some sounds of the bell and um, perhaps whatever the next announcements are. Thank you. <laughs>